0: Thank you for listening to Crossroads Community Church of Jefferson Hills. At Crossroads, our mission is to be the church by sharing and showing the love of Christ and inviting others to be recipients of Christ's love. Now, here is this week's message from Pastor Floyd Hughes. Uh, We're continuing to walk through the book of Ezra, one of the historical books of the Bible uh, that gives details on what happened to the Israelites when they returned from captivity in Babylon, uh, and it also talks about how they reclaimed their land, their heritage, and their purpose as the people of God. Uh, So we're finally into chapter 2, which we're going to look at today. So if you have the Bible, open it up to Ezra chapter 2, because in Ezra chapter 2, it gives a detailed list concerning the people who returned from Israel. However, equally important, right, is the people that did not return, because not everyone that was taken into captivity, those who survived, those who uh, were were born up and raised up, not all of them returned. Some people, believe it or not, had gotten extremely comfortable. um, Even though they were in bondage, even though they were in captivity, God protected them. And God provided for them. So Jeremiah, we talked about this over the last couple of weeks, prophesied and said, hey, you guys are going to be in captivity, and you're going to be taken away. And it was violent, and it was bloody, and a lot of people lost their lives. And we talked about last week how that wasn't on God. That was on the people of Israel because for hundreds of years, he kept telling them, you know, you're not obeying my word. You're not obeying my word. This is what's going to happen if you don't obey my word. He sent prophet after prophet, and they didn't listen until finally, Uh, the siege on uh, Jerusalem happened, a lot of the people were taken into captivity. And just as Jeremiah had preached, he was one of the prophets that went to them and said, hey, this is what's going to happen if we're not obedient to God's word. Jeremiah also told them, hey, while we're here in Babylon, God is going to keep us, protect us, and he's going to bless us. Um, And this is one of those familiar passages. We talked about it a lot because it's from Jeremiah chapter 29. And he's where he writes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem into Babylon, build houses, settle down, plant gardens, eat what they produce. In other words, make this your home. Just like you had a home in Israel. I know you're in captivity, but make this your home here. And he says, marry, have sons and daughters, find wives for your sons, give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. In other words, he said, this isn't a time for you to get all like, oh, this sucks When and we're not gonna do anything. This is a time for you to continue to populate. And here's why. He says, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it. Because if it prospers, you too will prosper. And what we're going to see is that some of these people came out even better than when they went into captivity. Granted, they were taken into captivity, dragged out of their homes. They lost family members because it was a war. He did do a siege. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar did do a siege on Jerusalem. But they started, they built homes. They had businesses. Some of them had franchises of their business. Uh, They started restaurants, some of them opened, you know, a local McDonald's chapter. They they were doing well. God blessed them while he was there, and God said this is why, the verses that everyone's familiar with, this is what the Lord says, when 70 years are completed, I'm going to come to you, I'm going to fulfill my good promise, I'm going to bring you back to this place, and we've been talking about that. Ezra is where this is fulfilled, and he says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you plans to give you hope in the future. So while they were in captivity, God blessed the heck out of them. They had the resources now of the greatest nation on the planet at that time, and they were a part of that nation, and they reaped the benefits of it. As Babylon prospered, they prospered. Okay? So we're going to look at that because that shows why some of the people didn't come back. Some of the people were like, hey, you guys go back. First of all, it's a long, and I forget. I should have looked it up. I don't remember if it's six or 800 miles, or it might be 900 miles. It's a long trip, not by bus, by plane, or by train, by foot, by carriage, and by camel. That's a long trip to make. So some of them were like, have at it. I'll write you. But I'm staying here, where I have a home, business, I have a job. Not only that, we're going to get to an area that was destroyed, burnt to the ground. So I just built my home here, just put on an addition for the kids, right? Just took out a second loan to get a car for the grandkids because they just got out of college, and now you want me to go back here and build a home again. No job, no resources, don't know what's out there. I'll pray for you. Hope it works out. Now, many of those who stayed, uh, later on, they would end up coming once they hear how God uses and blesses them. But a lot of the people stayed behind. And it, and it wasn't a bad thing. They were just like, God has blessed the heck out of me here. I don't necessarily need to go there. But the people who went, right, their thinking was, hey, we need to get back to being what God has called us to be. Yes, God has blessed us here, but we're not meant to stay here. We're meant to be the people of God, a nation unto God, so that everyone in the world can see what it's like to be in relationship with God. We gotta get back to that. So uh, if you have your Bible, open it up to Ezra chapter two. And in Ezra chapter two, and hopefully we'll make it through chapter three as well, I think we will time permitting. In Ezra chapter 2, this is what it reads. Now, these are the people of the province who came up from the captivity of the exiles, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had taken captive to Babylon. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town, in company, and we're not going to read every name, but in company uh, with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, who is of the book of Nehemiah, the book that comes after Ezra, Seraiah, Rileah, Mordecai, not the same Mordecai from Esther, Bilshan, Mispar, Bigvei, Rehum, and Bana. And then it gives a list of the descendants of all the people, uh, the descendants of the priests, the descendants of the Levites. And if you turn to the next page, it gives the temple servants. But then drop down to verse 64. In verse 64, here's what it says It says, the whole company numbered 42,360. That's how many people made this journey back besides and pay attention to this there's 7337 men servants and maid servants god has to bless you a whole lot to have men servants and maid servants. like how many here have a maid i don't right most of us don't most of you watching don't if you do that's awesome don't forget the tithe but most of us don't have a maid right we don't have like an alfred bruce wayne alfred or, or drivers, or the Brady Bunch—they had Alice, but where—and and Alice probably would have made the trip back with them because these men servants and maid servants made the trip from Babylon to Jerusalem with them, and they also had 200 men and women singers, 736 horses, 245 mules, 435 camels, 6,720 donkeys. This does not sound like. All of the poor people who are like, we're so good to get out of slavery. This sounds like a very well equipped group of people whom God has blessed. And we're going to see that even more so in a minute. Verse 68 When they arrived at the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, and I don't know if you remember, we talked about this last week, Nebuchadnezzar burnt it to the ground. So the temple, was just a burnt husk. But when they rounded the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, some of the heads of the families gave freewill offerings, so they had money, toward the rebuilding of the house of God on its site. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury for this work 61,000 drachmas of gold, 5,000 minas of silver, and 100 priestly garments. I don't know how much the priestly garments were worth, but if you add the drachmas and the minas of silver and gold, it was somewhere in the range of over $20 million. These weren't poor people going back, giving. And first of all, this is not a sermon where I'm going to ask all of a sudden now everybody to give money. That's not what this is about, because it sounds like this is where this is going. That's not what this is about. But this is where God had blessed them immensely. The priest. The Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, temple servants, they settled in their own towns along with some of the other people, and the rest of the Israelites settled in their towns. So they got about the business. They got back. They started rebuilding the homes that were destroyed. They started like, okay, you're going to live in that house. You're going to have to rebuild it. You're going to live in that house. We've got to clear this land because we've got to plant some stuff. We need food. We have only the food we get with us, so we've got to plant some stuff so it can grow. They did all of that, but then these next couple of sentences are key. When the seventh month came, and the Israelites had settled in their towns. So after that, everyone got settled. You and your house, good. Your window's on. We got to get the doors up. Uh, all that stuff was done. The people assembled as one man in Jerusalem. Then Jeshua, son of Jazedek, and his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and his associates, began to build the altar of God of Israel to sacrifice burnt offerings on it in accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. So before they built the building, the church, the temple, and all that stuff, they said, we've got to build an altar so that we can make sacrifices and get back in right standing with God despite their fear of the peoples around them. Now, this is intense because uh, in a little bit, uh, hopefully, whenever we get to... uh, the rest of the chapters, and especially when you get to Nehemiah, what you're going to see is the people hated them, talked about them, judged them, wanted to kill them, told the government on them in order to stop what they were doing. And this is kind of like where the church is today because there are people who are complaining about the church. Hey, how come the church gets to meet inside and, you know, restaurants aren't open? There are some people complaining about the church. Why is the church meeting inside when other people aren't? Uh, there are some people who are, are are complaining about you know Christians and uh, even the government coming down on Christians and all of this is going on. But their thing was, we don't care what anyone else says. We need to come to the altar and get right with God. And this is kind of like where we, the church, should be. Doesn't matter what anyone else says. Doesn't matter that people judge us. Doesn't matter that people talk bad about us. Doesn't matter. I've had. Um, on this social media app called TikTok, don't go on TikTok, it's about to be banned anyway. People, because I post stuff about God on there, people come in and hating on me and yelling at me. and, And Christy will tell you that there's like literally hundreds of comments of angry people because I made posts about God. And I've seen some other people say, well, I'm gonna stop posting about God. And I'm like, I don't care what they say. We shouldn't care what other people say about us if, one, we're doing what we know is right and is the most important, two, we're doing what we know God has called us to do. It doesn't matter how many people judge us, what they say about us, how bad they talk about us. It doesn't matter. If we're doing what we know is right and we're doing what God has called us to do, we shouldn't fear what anyone else says. And this is what they did. They didn't fear what anyone else says. Despite the fear of the peoples around them, they built the altar altar on its foundations and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord. Both the morning and evening sacrifices. Then, in accordance with what is written, they celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles, which is a feast that was celebrated in order to thank God for the way that he preserved them and provided for them in the desert. And even though they hadn't been in the desert for 40 years, they had been in captivity for 70 years. So one of the first things they did is celebrate and rejoice in God being able to provide for them. Verse five. After that, they presented the regular burnt offerings, new moon sacrifice, sacrifices for all the appointed sacred feasts of the Lord, as well as those brought as, excuse me, as well as those brought as freewill offerings to the Lord. Verse six. On the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, though the foundation of the Lord's temple had not been laid, without a building, right? Without lights, without live streaming, without anything else. They just got together and said, Hey, you know what? We're going to build an altar. And we're going to bring sacrifices to God, and we're going to give thanks to God. Now, excuse me, really quick, let me kind of expound, because most of us aren't familiar with an altar. We don't use altars today. We use the terminology, but we don't use altars uh, today. So an altar was an elevated table or platform to make sacrifices or offerings to connect with God. Sacrifices were so that your sins could be atoned for, because you couldn't come into the presence of God without your sins being atoned for. The offerings, as we just read, were ways to thank God, right? It was ways to say, thank you, God, for providing for me. Thank you, God, for saving me. Thank you, God, for all of your blessings and all of that stuff. And the first time that we see an altar being used in the Bible was after the flood. So uh, let me jump back to Genesis really quickly because it says that Noah, the first thing he built was an altar. Actually, the first thing he probably did was build a bathroom for himself because he had just shared one with Bunch of people and animals. And no one likes public bathrooms. That's what I would build first. Anyway, Noah came out together with his sons, his wife, and his son's wives, all the animals, all the creatures that move along the ground, all the birds, everything that moves on the land. They came out of the ark, one kind after another. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord. Taking some of all the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed bird offerings on it. Because he was just saying, hey, thank you, God, for preserving me and my family during this difficult time. That's what the, the, the Israelites did as well. They built an altar to say, thank you for preserving us, not just for 70 years, but for this long journey back. But then after this, it says this, that the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, never again will I curse the ground because of humans. And many people think that the offerings that we give, that they're just ridiculous, waste of time. But God saw that, God received that, and it was a way for the people to interact with God. So, um, sorry, it's a way for the people to interact with God. Now, same was true for the Israelites. They built an altar to collectively, as one group, give thanks to God. They built an altar to say, thank you, God, for preserving us. Thank you for keeping us. Thank you for all of that stuff. And I realized that our nation is in turmoil. Uh, Again, racial tension still in multiple cities, protests, clashing, violence, Uh, a pandemic still going on, economic chaos, one of the most contentious uh, political climates that we've been in in our lifetimes. But even despite all of that, If you had to, could you stop and think of at least one thing to say, you know what? I can thank God for this. Despite the pandemic, despite the economic crisis, despite the racial tensions in our country, despite the fact that we don't know what's going on with the schools, how many people could say, yeah, I can honestly think of one thing that I can give and thank God to. And if you can't, let me do this. Raise your hand if you ate this morning, if you have food at home in your house. Thank God for that. If you have a house that has food in it, thank God for that. If your AC works, thank God for that. If you drove here in a car, thank God for that. All of those are things that we can stop and say, you know what, God, I I, I know there's a lot going on in the world that I should not be happy about. But there's also a lot of things that I should thank you for. So. I'm going to ask us to just do this, just for like 10 or 15 seconds. Just bow your head for a minute and just think of one thing that you can be thankful for and just from your heart, just say thank you, God, for this one thing. Just everyone bow your heads and just take like 10 seconds to thank God. God, we are so grateful for all of your blessings. We thank you so much that despite all of the, just the issues and turmoil that's going on in our world, that every single one of us can honestly say that there is at least one. And we know there are so many more things that we can give thanks to you for. And for that, we praise you and we thank you in Jesus' name, amen. So the the Israelites, they built an altar to thank God, uh, but they also built an altar to praise God. Yes, thank you, God, for for seeing us on this long journey, for providing for us, but also to give God the praise that he is due for everything that he had blessed them with while they were in captivity. I'm going to jump to uh, a verse in 2 Timothy that some of you may be familiar with, some of you may not be. 2 Timothy, this is what it says, this saying is sure and worthy of confidence. If we have died with him, we shall also live with him. This is, uh, now, we have a series that we do called the Pastoral Letters, and we've gone through 1 Timothy. We haven't hit 2 Timothy yet. Actually, the next one should be Titus because that was written chronologically before 2 Timothy, Uh, but we'll get to those. Uh, But in 2 Timothy, one of the pastoral letters, Paul writes to Timothy, and he says this saying is true, and the saying that all these things you're about to say, many people believe that they were hymns that were sung and sayings that grew up amongst the people of God. One of them being this saying, sure, worthy of confidence, if we have died with him, we shall also live with him. Meaning, even if I lose my life, I get to spend an eternity with God. And he says this, if we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny and disown and reject him, he will also deny and disown and reject us. And that's more speaking to uh, if we say, hey, I'm going to deny him. I want nothing to do with him. God's not going to force himself on us. He's going to respect our choice. But he also says this, if we are faithless, if we don't believe and are untrue to him, this doesn't mean that you don't become a christian it means as a christian we do what many of us have done doubt god's ability to handle something if we're faithless if we doubt god's ability to see us through the pandemic if we're faithless and we doubt god's ability to provide during an economic crisis he says he remains true faithful to his word and character for he cannot deny himself In other words, even when we doubt what God can do, God still shows up, not because we deserve it, because he's God. Because that's who he is, that's what he does. Even when we turn our back on him, he doesn't turn his back on us. He still continues to meet our need and to provide for us. And I get um, that there are a lot of people that are angry right now because of everything going on in our nation. But maybe what we need to do as the church is what the Israelites did as soon as they got back, build an altar and make a sacrificial offering to God. Now, I'm not asking us to build an offering, and I'm not asking for money, but maybe what we can do is this. Wherever you are right now, if you're at a table, many of you guys are at tables. If you're at home and at a table, take the space in front of you and pretend that's an altar. And on that altar, take anything that you've had doubts about. Doubts about God's ability to see us through this pandemic. Doubts about, you know, hey, God, what's going on with the parking lot? What are you going to do with that? Anything that you've had doubts about, take it and just say, you know what? I'm going to put this on an altar as a sacrificial offering to God. Anything that we've had frustrations about. Frustrated with the government for not moving fast enough or frustrated with the government for making too many moves and violating our rights or whatever those frustrations are, say, I'm going to take those, I'm going to just lay those on the altar as a sacrificial offering to God. Or one that I've had to deal with lately, and I don't know about you, maybe it's just me, is just not frustration, just straight-up anger. Not like I need counseling and, and, and Hulk-level Anger, but just anger, especially whenever I see the church divided over all of these issues. Like we don't believe God can handle them. So every now and then I've had to take a lot of that anger and say, you know what, God, I just need to give this over to you and lay it on the altar. So I'm going to ask us to do this. Just bow your heads for a moment. And just so you guys know, there are people online saying they can give all kind of thanks for God to all of their things. I'm ask you to bow your head for a moment. God, we lift up all of our doubts, all of our anger, all of our frustration, all of our fear, all of our anxiety, all of our mistrust of the government and people and all of that stuff, and we just want to lay it on the altar. And we want to be able to walk away trusting in you and your ability and grateful for you being so faithful to us even when the people of God and the body of Christ has been faithless to you. God, we pray that you would take all of this stuff away. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. Uh, I'm going to close with this passage of scripture because this is one of the verses that is really, I've had to go back to from time to time. Um, and it's in Matthew. And in Matthew chapter 16, God literally created uh, the church. It says, when Jesus went into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the son of man is? This is the question that we all have to answer. Who do we say that Jesus is? Uh, And they answered, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And there are some Christians who say, yeah, Jesus was a great teacher. Jesus was, you know, a prophet. Jesus was this. But they don't believe he was who he said he was. And we all have to answer this question that Peter answered. He said, who do you say that I am? Peter said, well, you, you... I hear some saying you're a prophet. I hear some saying you're a good teacher. I hear some saying you're just, and I've heard this too, a great person who cared about the poor. He doesn't leave room for that. And Peter had to acknowledge, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, hey, God revealed that to you. God, you didn't come to that on your own. But then he says this in the next verse. He says, on this revelation." I'm going to build my church. And here's the thing he said, the gates and the powers of hell will not be able to prevail against the church. Think about that for a moment. He's saying that, hey, it doesn't matter if all of the forces of hell try to come against the church, they're not going to prevail. So why would we worry if the government tries to come against the church or a a pandemic tries to come against the church, or anyone tries to come against the church. As long as we stand together and stand united, they won't prevail. So here, there's, there's not a weapon, no pandemic, nothing that can come against the church, but the problem is the people of God, we can hinder the efforts of the church if we don't take our doubts, our anger, our frustration, and leave them on the altar. So I'm going to ask you to bow your heads one more time. God, we lift up all of the congregations that are meeting around the world, regardless of their political affiliation, regardless of their denomination. We pray that they would be laying all of their doubts, all of their fears on the altar. We pray that they would be walking out with the hope inspired by the spirit of the living God. We pray that they would be celebrating you, rejoicing in you despite a pandemic, despite a nation gripped with racial tension, despite the economic crisis. We pray that the people of God would be the voice of hope and reason, that we would be the church that you spoke of, the one that the gates of hell cannot prevail against. And we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, and everyone said, amen. Amen. So here's what I'm going to ask us to do for the next seven days. Yeah, pray for teachers, as we, as we said earlier. Pray for the teachers. Pray for the administrators. But also take some time every day to just pray for the church. Pray for the people of God. And just merely pray this one thing, that we would be faithful to the God who created the church, because there is nothing else on the planet like it, that we would be faithful to be that thing that the gates and the powers of hell can't come against. Pray that for the next seven days. Pray that in Jesus' name. Uh, Pray that you guys have an awesome rest of your Sunday. Uh, God bless and see everyone next week.